This week on the Back Table Podcast. I usually tell the patient exactly what I'm going to do and the reason, the purpose behind my exams, you know. I tell the so patient, important. yeah, I tell the patients that, you know, I'm going to palpate different regions in your pelvis. I want you to tell me whether I reproduce your pain or produce a different kind of pain altogether. Uh, the better, you know, I can, you know, reproduce your pain, the more likely I can help you, you know. And and I also tell them about, I perform a rectal vaginal exam on all my patients with pelvic pain, essentially. It's not something that everybody does, you know, so for them it's like, the first time for them to have rectal vaginal exams. So I tell them exactly the reason behind that that I do the rectal vaginal exam. I tell them that, you know, that the most common site of metriosis is gonna be in the colosacral intrasacral ligament, and it's a lot easier for me to access that area with a finger in the rectum. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Back Table OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. This is Mark Hoffman, and I'm here with a friend and uh, incredible guest, uh, Dr. Ted Lee. How are you, Dr. Lee? Can I, right. and can I call you Ted for the show? Please, please. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Once you're not fellow uh, anymore, you can, you, can, you can call me Ted. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, for our listeners, uh, Ted is uh, a legend in our in, in our field of MIGS, minimally invasive GYN surgery. He is a clinical professor of OBGYN at McGee Women's Hospital, uh, UPMC in Pittsburgh. He is the director of the Division of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery, uh, past president of AAGL, has won the Golden Laparoscope Award uh, there, I think, six times. Is that right, Ted? Uh, yeah. I haven't break uh, I haven't break uh, Tom Brady's record yet. Well, I, I think they if they haven't already, the award should be named after you. Is that is that how it works? Uh, <laughs> I'm not. We'll I don't think so. I'll, I'll, I'll work on that. Yeah. Um, and also a member of the board at uh, SGS, the Society for uh, GYN Surgeons. So, uh, Ted, thanks again for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be one of your guests. Now we're we're excited, and this is uh, a, con- a continuation of a conversation we had actually at SGS uh, about um, things to talk about in the show. But uh, one thing you wanted to talk about, which I think is an extremely important topic, is like the ambulatory workup of endometriosis for patients in whom we suspect endometriosis. But before we get started into the topic, tell us a little bit about your practice, how you got to be where you are. Because I think those of us who, you know, did the AAGL MIGS fellowships, it was sort of set up for us in ways that maybe not everybody had that. So talk to us about your current practice and how you got to be where you are. Yeah, I think I kind of fall into what I do currently, you know, accidentally, to be honest with you. When I was a resident, you know, I think obviously laparoscopic surgery at that time was very, very un- uncommon in academic OBGYN residency programs. And you probably don't know this, um, laparoscopic surgery in, in our field was started in the people in the, in the private sector. And it's virtually nobody in the academia that is teaching laparoscopic surgery. So when I was a resident, you know, my exposure was basically vaginal surgery. Uh, I had a, a very good mentor, Dr. Terry Gordy, who has obviously since passed, you know, was very well known in the vaginal surgery world. And then I thought when I finished training, that would be something I wanted to do. At that time, and it was only probably a handful of year kind of fellowship. And then I applied and I didn't get the, the position. And so I started out my, my job as a, a brand new faculty practice 
in a small OB-GYN residency program in Baltimore called Union Memorial Hospital. It's like next to the Hopkins undergrad campus. And during that year, I have really, I wasn't busy. I had only about two or three patients, a half day session sometimes. I have like nobody because it's a brand new practice. I had nobody. I didn't know how to get patients. And this was a general's practice, obstetrics and gynecology? Yeah, we have like two or three residents a year. Uh, obviously, the residents no longer exist at this point. And then, uh, so I was kind of like, feel like I'm wasting my life away. I want to do surgery and I wasn't getting any surgery. You know, I borrowed a bunch of slides from Terry Grody at the time I was teaching the residents about vaginal surgery, sacrospinal ligament fixation and so on, but I wasn't doing any surgery. So I feel like my, you know, I just feel like this is not going anywhere. So, and it does, that was the year I learned how to fly fish because <laughs> I, I have well, so much something, time. something good came out of that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, I, so I, I had a lot of you know, free time on, on my hand and then how to fly fish and then I then how to tie flies during that same year. So one day I opened the OBGYN news. I, I don't know, most of the audience, the younger audience this day doesn't even know what OBGYN news is. It's, it, it, uh, you know, basically, uh, uh, basically a uh, actual paper, newspaper, basically, that give you the information on what's going on in the OBGYN world. They would have summaries of different meetings. And in the back of the OBGYN news, there's always some advertisement for some job positions. And one day uh, I opened it up and then it was this fellowship with uh, Tommy Lyons and CY Lu, both of which are one of the, you know, they are both pioneers in our field. Initially it was supposed to be a combined fellowship, but end up each one of them end up taking their own fellows at a different time frame. So I ended up becoming fellow with, with Tom Lyons. And he was in Atlanta, is that right? Atlanta, yeah, he was in Atlanta. Yeah. 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 If you guys don't know, he, he used to play, um, professional football at Denver Broncos. Now, it's one of the most interesting biographies I've ever read in my life. I think he was like a concert musician too and like led the Detroit or the Denver Philharmonic, I think yeah. at one point while he was a member of the Denver Broncos. And didn't he? It was the medical school at the same time, at the same time too. Yeah. <laughs> just, these people are made of different stuff than I am. That's, that's, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So, and oh, by the way, he's a pioneer in gynecologic surgery. Right, exactly. You know, he was a, a big proponent of a laparoscopic supracervical hysterectomy. Back, you know, at, at that time, he was, I mean, yeah, he could do a total hysterectomy easily, but he really kind of believed that, that you know, if a patient doesn't have any pathology in the cervix, the cervix should be kept. So that was kind of, you know, and, and he was the first person I realized that how beautiful dissection in laparoscopic surgery can happen. Uh, and I also spent a lot of time with CY Lupin because back in those days, they were the big shots, right? They are like invited to, meetings all over the world. So, so one of them is always traveling somewhere. So whenever time is traveling somewhere in Greece or Italy or somewhere, I would drive up to Chattanooga and watch see what I do operate and, you know, and vice versa. So I learned a lot what from What an amazing opportunity. Yeah. And it was, and it was kind of very strange because, you know, the, apparently when the position was posted, there was over a hundred applications for one spot. Wow. You know, I was obviously very fortunate. I don't know how I got chosen. The only thing I can think of is that I share the same birthday as Tom Lyons, and we have the same initial. <laughs> whatever it takes. I mean, yeah, again, takes, I think. Yeah. yeah. But no, I, I, I think it's always fun for me to start the show with, with yeah. understanding how people got to be where they are, to think what a loss to yeah. Migs it would be had you matched in the Euro guy. Yeah. yeah, it was meant to be. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't your favorite day, but it was a good thing for patients with endometriosis and, uh, and for, for the MIGS uh, specialty as a whole. So so you were with Tommy Lyons and CY Lu for a year? One year. Back then, it was basically apprenticeship. Back in those days, it's like uh, the kind of like the 
people service, you know, those people in private practice, the rock stars of our field, they were basically getting paid before service for everything, you know, not just for the mitosis surgeries, everything they get before service. So, you know, I was fortunate to allow, you know, he allowed me to perform some of the surgeries. Uh, I also practiced a lot on my own and I was his first fellow, so he didn't know what to do with me, to be honest. <laughs> and I was practicing a lot on, on my own, you know, so he has a back room where he has like a TV monitor. Um, and so I, I, I construct, uh, my little pelvic trainer that's made of a copy paper box with a lid and I put troll cars uh, on the lid of the paper box and I carve out the end of the box. Uh, and I use the colposcopy light as my light source. And I put my, the camcorder that was uh, the gift from my in-laws and I put on a tripod and I connected to the TV monitor and that was my, my pelvic trainer. And I would be uh, basically getting the chicken thigh, getting all the fat of the chicken thigh, debone the chicken thigh all laparoscopically and then close the defect of the chicken thigh once I debone the chicken thigh. And that was basically kind of my, my training, my, my pelvic trainer and it comes in handy. So when he handed me, you know, the, the tools and I was able to jump out and do a laparoscopic birch perivaginal repairs with, without much prompting, because I was pretty good at suturing by that point on my own. With all That's that something that I talk to my residents about a lot is, you know, I think when we're teaching up in surgery, most of us know how to hold a pen, you know, holding a knife and retracting. There's skill there, but I think we're used to using our hands. What I want our residents to show up to the OR with is the ability to use those instruments as their, you know, as extensions of their hands. Uh, That's something that, that you can do in the lab. Like you did with the cardboard box. That's something yeah. I did with a, you know, a cheap trainer in a closet up by the post-op floor, just throwing stitches and just tying knots and just doing as many of those kinds of little dexterity things. So when I got to the OR and had an opportunity to operate, I could learn how to operate, not how to hold the instruments. And so that's exactly. a perfect example of how someone can take the, make the most of their opportunity in that situation. So, right. so you, were, you were with Tom Lyons, Tommy Lyons, you were there for a year. And then were you, did you go straight to Pitt after that? No, no, I was, uh, it also, at that time, mix wasn't a thing. Most, you know, most academic departments doesn't know what mix is. And so I finished, you know, I was getting close to finishing my fellowship. I sent out maybe over a hundred cover letters to various OBGYN cheers in the country. And I think I heard back from like three or four places. Okay. Um, and so the first pl place that offered me, um, uh, a job was medical college of Georgia because, okay. you know, because, you know, Tom is very famous and people in Georgia respect him. So I got a job offer there uh, and then I, I interviewed at Wake Forest, uh, and I interviewed at GW and uh, GW was where I went. That's my first job after fellowship. Okay. Yeah. And how long anyway, were there? I was there for two and a half years, two and a half years. Yeah. And so when I started there was, you know, it's, uh, I'm kind of, I, what I do is, you know, I think most people can consider me as like a threat because I, I'm the kind of staring out, staring out the status quo there. And there's a lot of people, you know, people just at that time, just kind of like, don't want you to succeed basically. And they just had to prove them wrong and, 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 uh, and you, you get better and so on because they always, people want to pick on you when, when you first start, especially, you know, back then, you know, laparoscopic surgery just wasn't so common. And so, yeah. And then also when I started, I still had to do OB calls. I was doing a lot of OB yeah, calls. Not, 
I did too. It's nice yeah. to see all these jobs that are yeah. being posted now for MIGS fellows. It's yeah. not, it would would have been yeah. nice, but it's yeah. folks like you that laid the groundwork for the rest yeah. of us to to follow. Yeah, and then it was from there. It was Pitt. Was Pitt right? So yeah. So at that time, towards you know my the the last year of my my tenure at GW, they were having some financial troubles, and I just kind of you know opened the back of the Green Journal. At that time, I was, I, mean, I was doing, I had been always doing a lot of urogyne procedure laparoscopically, even when I was at McGee. So when, at, at the, when I opened the back of the OBGYN journal, they have a position chop, you know, posted for urogynecologist at McGee Women's Hospital. And I just apply. I also applied for a position at Yale at that time. But then McGee replies, well, that position has been taken, but your, your uh, experience is very, very different. And my chairman still want to interview. Come, have you come in and uh, uh, interview you? So, who was the chair at the time? Rick White. He's an infectious disease expert from uh, originally from the uh, University of San Francisco. Amazing how much a leader with vision can can make an impact and get someone yeah. like you to come and give you the space to grow and build something when other when most other people in that in that situation in that seat did not. I love hearing the story of how you got to where you are because it's it's never the straight shot. It's almost never just the straight yeah, shot. Yeah, it, it's a very uh, very circuitous, you know. That it's not like a direct straight line. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask you before we get into the the, I mean, endometriosis related, but before we get into the workup, I think as, as a fellow who also went somewhere after training where I was the only mixed person and there wasn't a whole lot of there wasn't anyone really doing what I did. I found endometriosis surgery to be the toughest thing to learn how to do, and I still feel like I have so much to learn. You know, I watch your videos and talk to you about this and your colleagues and those you, who you've trained. How did, how did your interest, your skill set, your ability to take care of those complex endometriosis patients, how did that come to be? What did that look like in your early career? Yeah, I think in the ERG career, I was obviously still learning. You know, I think to, be, to get to where I am obviously took many, many years. And also back in those days, there wasn't YouTube, there wasn't any kind of, you know, any kind of things that you can watch online, you know, so everything is you go to meetings and you see how the people does it and you're trying to go back and to see, you know, if you can do it and so on. And that's how it was, you know, in those days. So when, when I started, it was basically, I remember like when I was at GW, anytime I get into trouble, I, I had my good friend oncologist come in and help me and usually if I have to, you know, endometriosis is so severe, you know, he will come in and open the patients and he would do a surgery with me. Obviously, that in those early days, that's how it was, you know, and then you learn and you get better. I think what got me interested in is like not even patient with severe endometriosis and actually patient who has actually relatively straightforward endometriosis surgery, you know, relatively straightforward excision. And patient has seen many doctors and have many procedures done and they have no improvement of their pain. All of a sudden you come in there, you find endometriosis, you cut it out and they are pain-free. And I, you feel like, you feel special. You feel you can do something that other people cannot do and then you keep on doing it. And that, I think that's how it all got started is just because just a few patients that you feel you can make impact on give you that motivation to continue to do more. And then as you get, as you get, you know, better knowing that you get fed a lot of worse and worse cases. And, and then, then you, you kind of either stink or swim, you know, you get better and figure things out. And then, you know, that's, that's how, how it works. And I think it, a lot of times is, um, I feel my, consider myself very, very fortunate that I was able to be able to take care of a lot of complicated patients early on in my career without, you know, causing too much complications. 
and be able to learn. No, it's, a, it's a tight line to walk. I mean, I yeah, I had that experience in many ways. And actually, it was at a different hospital than our GYN oncologist. And so it was urology, it was colorectal for me for some of these bigger, tougher cases. And it was, I'm very, very grateful for the the partners that I had, uh, that I have that, that work with me, but also, yeah, I mean, you, you get into too much trouble early on, that can be uh, the end for your career in that place. And so it's, it's a tight, it's a tight rope to walk for sure. Yeah. But, you know, for all the surgery we could talk with, with Ted Lee, you know, one of the things that I was surprised that he, he said he was interested in talking to, about the ambulatory workup of endometriosis, but it's also, I think one of, you know, when I talk to residents about, or, or, or trainees about, you know, being a surgeon, I, I always focus on the clinic workup, the ambulatory workup, the decision for surgery. That's what I think really makes the doctor. I think you can train a lot of people to do procedures, but the decision to go to the OR. So what is it about endometriosis, before we get into the sort of the steps you take, what is it about endometriosis that is such a diagnostic challenge? Because it is, right? It's, you know, years, seven, eight years before people get diagnosed. What is it about endometriosis that makes diagnosing it so difficult? I, I think, you know, it's there's always uh, the stigma of pelvic pain. You know, I think most, a lot of people, whenever, you know, they're busy, practice, you have many patients waiting in the waiting room and then you, you know, flip the chart and look at this patient's chart and say, oh, pelvic pain. And then, then, you know, automatically a lot of people just thinking that, well, it's pelvic pain, you know, it's gonna take a lot of time. And so they already have like kind of a billion prejudice, you know, already about the patient. And, and that's one of the obstacles that, that the patient faces is that the, the physicians themselves just don't feel comfortable asking questions and taking care of this type of patients. And reality is, is once you have done this long enough, it's a lot of the questions become very automatic. You know, nowadays, nowadays, you know, if you have Epic, you can have like a, basically a smart, you know, smart phrase or smart text, basically all the prompting questions that ask, prompt you to ask, and you can do that very, very easily. You know, back in those days for me, it was just automatic. That's what I ask and it's, you know, and the answers I get. But once you're comfortable with it, the history part of the uh, the whole encounter, it's not it's pretty straightforward, and everything's practice. If you do enough, then it's, it won't take us long. My guess is most of the patients, or many of the patients that you're seeing, are patients that have already been diagnosed with endometriosis, and then they get referred to you. Is that true? Or are you getting a lot of patients I, that are just coming in with pelvic pain, or I have patients who has seen so many doctors already, and who hasn't been diagnosed. You know, so recently um, that um, I was shown a video of a patient of mine uh, that was uh, doing like basically um, the video was recorded uh, so one of the PhD students can convince the people who give out grants to give her the grants for us, like an AI diagnostics for endometriosis. Uh, and it was a project that Nicole Dinellen, one of my associate, was working on with a PhD student. And... Uh, so this was obviously after the, they recorded and they showed it to me, and it turns out like the 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 mentor for the for the patient uh, for the PhD student turned out to be the husband uh, of this patient. Oh wow! Yeah. So it was as if how did Dr. Dinella know about my patient? And so it was kind of strange, you know. So but anyhow, so they showed me the videos, and it was this patient who I who I met for the first time in her late forties. And she'd been having pelvic pain for many years and had four four rounds of IVF all fail. 
Uh, and I examine her and look at her ultrasound. I say, you're stage four endometriosis. You know, she has, you know, like tethering and nodularities on exam. You know, and then when I heard about the the, the IVF that, that she did, you know, the full IVF she did, I fell. I, I feel really bad. I said, I wish I had met you earlier. So not all my patients were diagnosed. Actually, a lot of patients are not, not diagnosed with endometriosis. Uh, they've been diagnosed with many different things. They have been diagnosed with the tissue cystitis. They have diagnosed with the bowel syndrome, everything else but endometriosis. I mean, for those of us that do it, those are red flags, right? Those, you know, IBS, IC, chronic pelvic pain. It yeah. just it it just jumps to the top of our list because I think we see it a lot. But I, I guess when you're not doing this a lot, it's not something maybe that's high enough on your differential. You know, a lot of our patients are given diagnosis that they don't have. A lot of times, you know, and so I have patients who like have supposedly to have interstitial cystitis and I, I palpate into a vaginal wall. She's not even tender there. Typically, patient with interstitial cystitis, you palpate into a vaginal wall, do a superpubic, you know, uh, compression, they would have severe pain, you know, but the patient, the, a lot of those patients don't have those kind of exams. And so there are a lot of patients being diagnosed with all kinds of problems, you know, levator spasms, IC, irritable bowel, and then you, you know, and I do an exam and I touch their cul-de-sac and uterocycle ligament and they jump off the table. That's the kind of exam, you know, that they have instantaneous reaction to the exam. What I call is very like a, a visceral reaction to the exam. That's a classic visceral reaction. That's how I term it, how I kind of describe it. Yeah, you can see it in their face. Yeah. It's I something mean, that they cannot fake, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's just like a very authentic exam. Uh, and those are the type of patients I know I can help. To begin your workup, now we can start in clinic, but a lot of folks will have like surveys and stuff they send out. Are you guys sending out packets or surveys to patients prior to them coming to clinic? Does the workup begin when they come into your office? Yeah. I think the problem with surveys sounds great. The problem is, is that nobody look at it a lot of times, you know? You no, need I, to I, think that's, I think that's very true. I mean, I think you need to have resources to have like a, a, a nurse practitioner or PA to screen or somebody to screen those surveys. And I think it could be incredibly helpful. Unfortunately, most people just don't have the time to go through the, the surveys. And I think it, it, it could, you know, ideally you really could, could use a survey, but ideally most people don't. So it starts with an HMP for you. It starts yeah, with exactly, just, you know, get a thorough history. And I think that's something about what we do that is extremely valuable. And like you said, I think there's it's where we it's the first thing we learned as med students. I don't think it's gotten less important, yeah. even with all the technology that we have. So in your in your history, what are what are the types of things you're asking that maybe not everybody is asking? So obviously, you know, G's and P's and other health history, but what are what are the what are the what are the things you're looking for in patients in whom you suspect endometriosis? Right. Well, I mean, obviously the age is extremely important, you know. Uh, so if you have a patient come in at age fifty, you know, and have pelvic pain for the first time, you're not going to think endometriosis, right? So you know, age the when the patient presented to you, obviously, you know, they can tell you older patient in their forties. They will tell me I have severe pain with my period since my teenage years, you know. So those patients, could, even though they present late, they can still have endometriosis because they understand the symptoms was many, many, many years ago. I think gravity parity is important too because a lot of times, 
you know, for example, if you are doing hysterectomy for fibroid and the patient G0, P0, right? And, and it should not be assumed that just the way it is because most, most people are going to be pregnant unless they purposely try to avoid pregnancies. So if they come in in G0, P0, you have to ask, well, you have you just don't want to have kids or you have you tried, you know, using kind of birth control. If they tell you, I just never used birth control and never got pregnant. And that should be a red flag, you know. That's a good one. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, and it's it's something that it's, it's you know, it's something that you need to keep the back of your mind. In terms of the Gs and Ps, I think these sections, vaginal delivery and stuff like that, it's important, especially with C-sections. A lot of patients with C-section end up with endomyosis. And the other thing that can happen with C-section is uh, abdominal wall endometriosis. I see, I see a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. I think my, my reflex to, to think about that is, is or my, my threshold rather, to think about that's pretty low. Yeah. If they're having pain at the, at the scar apices and you know, it, it, it gets missed a lot. Well, a lot of times abdominal endometriosis doesn't actually, are not even near the C-section scar. Sometimes they could be like maybe a few inches or even, you know, close to, you know, like remote from the actual C-section scar. And then the ones that get injured can miss a lot, you know, the subcutaneous ones that people can pick up because sometimes you'll feel that, you know, uh, in, in patients. Uh, the one that gets missed a lot is like rectus muscle endometriosis. Like subfascial, subfascial endometriosis, right? Yeah, those those you don't feel lump. You know, you just have, you palpate the area. They would have tenderness there, but you don't actually feel lump because it's subfascial. And in those patients, they'll frequently tell you the symptoms of uh, you know pain with coughing, pain doing sit ups. You know, that's worse with their period stuff like that. Uh, in those patients, I would I would just order MRI, and a lot of times they will show up with rectus muscle endometriosis. Yeah, and I and I want to I want to go through your uh, imaging uh, modalities to work up here in just yeah. a, in just a minute, but because I think I think there's a lot of variability, but I have a, I have a pretty low threshold for, for yeah. that as well. But so, but in history, yeah, in history, I think you know your typical things are three Ds, right? Dysmenorrhea, dyspareunia, dyskesia, very very kind of typical symptoms that you ask. You know, I think if patients does not have dysmenorrhea. As long as they're having menses, okay, then then this I think it's you know dysmenorrhea is the, like the most common, the most basic symptoms of uh, endometriosis, unless they become amenorrheic for different reasons, right? They are some kind of you know hormonal medication make them amenorrheic, but most patients with endometriosis, like I said, like almost all of them have dysmenorrhea. Dyspareunia, dyskesia are much more uh, what do you call it? It's it's it, you know patient can go without it, yeah, and I think. I tend to think, and I don't know that I have the evidence at the tip of my tongue to support it, but I think about endometriosis in terms of progression. So like you said, starting off when they start having periods, a lot of times they had painful periods with menarche or shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. they got put on birth control pills, whether it's because they were becoming sexually active or, or because their doctor said, ah, you're having painful periods, let's see if we can't improve that. And they do better for a number of years. And right. then sometime in their 20s, they're like, I'm tired of being on birth control pills or they're taking off birth control pills because they're going to try to start a family right. and all the symptoms return. Right. And that to me is like a telltale sign like okay. Yeah. When you were when you were being treated, symptoms went away and then it got a whole lot worse and the longer they're kind of off treatment the worse it gets and the more difficult right. it is to put them back on hormonal suppression to treat it. And that's oftentimes right. like when they get put back on and they fail that's when they get sent to me. Right. Um but yeah, I I, I always I agree. I feel like it's it starts cyclic 
all the other stuff down the road, the daily pelvic pain worse mm-hmm. throughout the day with activity, the musculoskeletal component, IC, IBS, kind of the three-headed monster mm. with endometriosis, that seems to be a later progression. Do you feel like that's what you're seeing as well in your patients? Yeah, I think so. But I think a lot of times, it tend, you know, initially the pain maybe is just during their periods and over time they would have pain outside their periods and typically still worse with period. Usually worse also during mid-cycle too. That's kind of very common kind of uh, uh, report. Like ovulation from the pain. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And also... One of the things that I and I tell other people is that, you know, I say if patients have lateralized pain during their period, that is a very important piece of history because that- Explain what you mean by that lateralized pain, like it radiates? No, if they say I have right-sided pain during my period or I have left-sided oh, pain specific. during my period. Yeah, not like just pelvic pain. If they can say I have very, you know, right-sided pain or left-sided pain. Of course, a lot of patients with endometriosis have midline pain too. But if they tell you that they have right side pain or left side pain during their period, that is very, very indicative of endometriosis. Yeah. So you have a patient that you are suspicious of. And I think, and I, I use the term in whom, you know, a patient with suspected endometriosis mm-hmm. or presumed endometriosis, because I think we talked a little bit about the delay in diagnosis. I think part of that is undoubtedly, you know, we got to believe women, we got to believe patients. It's chronic pelvic pain. It's a challenging condition that uh, can overlap. But I do think part of it is also the fact that this is a disease that is diagnosed, at least currently, it's a disease that is diagnosed surgically. So we'll have patients that I presume have it or for in whom I'm highly suspicious that they have endometriosis. But if they're doing well on birth control pills or we find some other, you know, non-surgical management that works for them, we don't necessarily have to diagnose do you, or at least, at least that's how I've been practicing. Do you, are there patients that you, are you always starting on, starting treatment with hormonal suppression of some kind prior to surgery or how quick are you to go to the OR? Yeah, I think it depends. You know, I think one of the, actually one of the, the barriers for diagnosis is frequently physicians are not comfortable of taking patients to the surgery. And one of the reasons the barrier is they are not sure if the surgery is going to help or if they're going to find anything. And so I think one of the ways that I, you know, for me is that I'm very confident with my history and exams that allow me to offer that a, a surgery as an option to the patient a lot more frequently uh, than other people. I think if you are not sure uh, whether the patient is, you know, having the choices or you're not even sure if you're going to be able to help the patient surgically, you're less likely to offer that as an option. Right. Physician... Physician comfort in managing a problem is, is definitely going to push you one way or another in terms right. of what you're going to recommend. Right, right, exactly. And of course, you know, always do no harm, right? That you don't want to do something that you don't have the training or the skill set to 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 perform uh, and hurt a patient. So, I mean, I totally understand that. But I think one of the barriers is that people in general just don't feel, you know, comfortable uh, performing surgery, uh, and that's one of the reason. And actually. One of the other reasons that I think most people don't think about is the patient themselves as part of the delay for, for the diagnosis because they write things off. They, they think yeah, it's normal. People get busy. People have lives. Yeah, or they don't know. That's right. They think it's normal. They say, oh, yeah, I miss work all the time. I miss school whenever I have my period. And then I just thought that was normal. You know? And then I tell them, no, that's not normal. You know? and, well, and, and sadly, a lot of, a lot of <laughs> patients that I see, they're, 
you know, their doctor said, well, you know, that's just the way it is. Or, right. you know, their mom or family or somebody right. has just sort of told them this right. is the way it's going to be or it's supposed to be. And that's, uh, it's okay. sad to hear that. But yeah, so listening is a huge part of right. diagnosis. Trust patients. Right. Believe them. When they when they tell you something's wrong, believe them. And they oftentimes have been through many, many things. But, when you, okay, so you've got a patient, you're suspicious that they have endometriosis based on a, a history. Touched about on it a little bit. What are the exam findings that make you think patient a patient is more likely to have endometriosis, less likely to have endometriosis? I, I do, you know, obviously, you know, see the patients, obviously see how their general behavior is and everything, you know, before I even start the exams. I usually tell the patient exactly what I'm gonna do and the reason, the purpose behind my exams, you know. I tell the so patient important. Yeah, I tell the patients that, you know, I'm going to palpate different regions in your pelvis. I want you to tell me whether I reproduce your pain or produce a different kind of pain altogether. Uh, the better, you know, I can, you know, reproduce your pain, the more likely I can help you, you know. And and I also tell them about, I perform a rectal vaginal exam on all my patients with pelvic pain, essentially. It's not something that everybody does, you know. So for them, it's like the first time for them to have rectal vaginal exams. So I tell them exactly the reason behind that, that I do the rectal vaginal exam. I tell them that, you know, that the most common side of endometriosis is going to be in the colosac intrasacral ligament. And it's a lot easier for me to access that area with a finger in the rectum. So are you feeling for big nodules or are you feeling for nodularity? Just like, is it is it pretty subtle sometimes, the findings on the... Most of patients don't have nodules. Most patients with endometriosis are not going to have nodules. Nodule is right, a right. sign of late disease, you know, and, and it's obviously when you feel nodules, you know that deep infiltrated endometriosis. So the majority of patients are just going to have localized tenderness in the area. So usually I, most people don't know how to do a rectal vaginal exam. And obviously this is a podcast, so people have to use their <laughs> imagination to to see how I do the exam, okay? So I have one finger, my index finger in the vagina, my middle finger in the rectum. I have my middle rectal finger palpate anteriorly and I feel the cervix. Cervix is a very reliable landmark you can feel on the on rectal exam because it's firm, okay? And we all know that utricycle ligament is there behind the cervix. So on either side of the cervix will be the utricycle ligament. So if you sweep it laterally and posteriorly, that will be your utricycle ligament. And whatever is in between is the it's the cul-de-sac. So if you touch that part of the the pelvis and you reproduce the pain that you know the the reaction that I describe as a visceral reaction to the exam. I feel pretty confident that those patients very, very likely would have endometriosis. Uh, I mean, that visceral reaction is something that is, you cannot fake that part of the exam. You know, obviously with pelvic pain, you know, there's always a lot of, you know, drug-seeking patients who, who, you know, want to, you know, get medication from you. But, but with this exam, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's very specific. And if everything hurts, you know, typically I, I don't feel confident the surgery is going to help them need something beyond surgery, right? If everything hurts. They may have vaginismus. So, so you're looking for more localized pain at the uterosacral ligaments, at posterior lower uterine segments of place. I feel like we feel it all the yeah. time. Yeah, mostly just post, you know, posterior cul-de-sac, uterosacral. So I can also feel like tethering. You know, if there's like scar tissues and I feel some tethering. And if they have very small, like what I say, granular nodularities, like little rice grains in the area, you know, I can feel that sometimes as well. Uh, obviously, there are big nodules I can feel. 
Uh, so those are what I do in virtual vaginal exam. But before I even get to that part, I usually palpate the anterior vaginal wall. That'll be the first thing I do. Unless I have a, a no other patient have cystitis. If I have very strongly suspicious patient might have cystitis. So I do like one digit or two finger exam on the anterior vaginal wall. Uh, you just start uh, first. Unless I strongly suspicious, that suspect that patient might have IC. Because if patient with IC touch that part first, then the exam is done basically. So those patients, I don't start anteriorly. But in general, for most of my patients, I start anterior vaginal wall. Palpate that area, uh, palpate the levator, obturator interest muscles, just for focal tenderness. Patient might develop myofascial pain. I used to do a lot of injections in the muscles, but a lot of times, you know, in, in my experience is that the muscle spasms and pain tend to be reactionary to the disease. And, and so if you treat a disease that, that, you know, the, that you would treat the patient. So a lot of injections that you make some temporary relief, but their pain will come back. The analogy I use for that, and I, I do the same thing. I mean, if you, you know, hold a gallon of, of water for a week, I can take the gallon of water away, but your muscle is still going to be hurting for a yeah. while. So yeah. occasionally we can address the initial insult. At times though, the muscle pain that was associated with may continue and there may be opportunities for improvement with PT, but I agree, you know, starting with the, the insult, the initial nidus of pain that led to that musculoskeletal pain, you dress that first and then see what's left over. I think that's a common thing. Yeah. Are you starting your exam with the back and the belly? Or are you going straight to the pelvic exam first? Or do you I always- just do, I just do the, obviously I just inspect the abdominal wall initially, especially in patients with C-sections and our palpate the vaginal wall. Most patients with endometriosis, unless they have abdominal wall endometriosis, typically abdominal portion exam are quite non-tender, okay? And so I always kind of like, I suspect something is not quite right when patient like you barely, you know, put your hands on the abdomen, they are like having so much pain, you know, those patients, you know, sometimes you're not sure if it's endometriosis related or something else. And so after I enter vaginal, levator and muscles, and then I touch posterior fornix. So in patient who endometriosis, if you like lift the cervix, do like try to do cervical motion tenderness, if you stretch the intrasacral ligaments, you know, they're going to have pain with that as well. Okay. So the, that, and then, then I do the rectal vaginal exam, the last part, you know, because that's the most kind of a difficult part of the exam that you don't want to do that first, because you know, that you may not be able to, you may not be able to do any of the exam after that. Right. Yeah. The exam enders, those parts of the exam that, yeah. where, you, where you've got, you, you've, you found something that's extremely painful. Yeah. So you have a patient that you suspect disease, or maybe in someone you expected, uh, you anticipate finding advanced disease. Now. I imagine you're someone who operates on the bowel frequently, you know, for those of us that, so I've got a, I've got a colorectal surgeon, a colleague I work with regularly for patients that, in whom we suspect bowel involvement. What, what are additional tests you're ordering? Are, are all your patients getting ultrasounds? How frequently are you getting MRIs? Um, what's your uh, threshold for referring to colorectal surgery or, or urology for patients? What are next steps you take uh, from clinic between your initial eval and then the operating room? Right. So I would say majority of my patients don't end up with any further imaging, okay? And by the way, you know, your typical OBGYN ultrasound are very, very uh, insensitive when with diagnosis of mitriosis because most patients are going to have stage 1, 2 disease and that's not visible on ultrasound, okay? And then so usually if the patients have evidence of endometrioma, you know, a patient have like debris field cysts, 
for example, you're taking somebody out to do hysterectomy for fibroid and you notice that she had debriefial cyst on her recent ultrasound and you look five years back and that debriefial cyst was there already. Guess what that cyst could be? It could be endometrioma. So it's what, the worst thing that you wanted to do is going to do, you think a simple fibro-endomyotics, uh, hysterectomy for endomyosis, and you go in there and you're frozen pelvis, okay? So presence of endometrioma is basically um, a factor, basically increase the risk of obliteration of cul-de-sac, frozen pelvis, and bowel invasions by as much as five times based on some of the earlier study by Ray White, okay? So if I have a patient with endometrioma, I would order MRI, okay? Because my finger can only reach up so far on my exams. So if there are nodularities beyond the reach of my finger, I would miss it. So those patients with endometrioma, I would definitely order MRI. You said you're not getting ultrasounds, though, on most patients, or you are? No, most patients already have ultrasound by the time they come to see right. me, right? And, and then and then most of them would say normal ultrasound, right? Right, but, right, but, right. but obviously, yeah. if they come in with, you know, the brief cysts or suspicious for endometrioma, regardless of my exams, those patients get an MRI just because the risk of having severe disease is so high. Yeah, I, I order quite a, a few MRIs, a, a lot of them, and we've got a radiologist we work with closely here as well who... You know, it's, it's important to have, just like I think it's important to have surgeons who operate on endometriosis a lot. I think having radiology <laughs> teams that are, you know, used to looking at pathology uh, is important. Do you have specific radiologists you work with uh, regularly at, at, at UPMC that are reading your scans? Sure. So the other thing I would, the other indication for MI would be if I feel nodules on exams. You know, those, okay. yeah, then those patients get MI. So there's basically two type of people get MRI, patient with endometrioma or patient with nodularities on exams, they get MRIs. Would, you, would the third be the abdominal wall endometrioma? Yeah, the patient is, if I, yeah, if I suspect like, you know, abdominal endometrioma, endometriosis, you know, I want to see what layers uh, of the abdominal wall this, this uh, endometriosis is involving, right? Because some of those patients might require resection of uh, a segment of the rectus muscles, some might have a piece of fascia removed. That may require you to place a mesh. You know, I place the mesh myself for a lot of those patients. I've been doing it for so many years. And so, you know, so those kind of things you need to know. And then frequently, a lot of times, because if you don't know, like, the depth of the invasion, then you, you think that the metriosis is just subcutaneous and you begin digging and digging and you hit the fascia, most people are just backed out and just say, stop right there. I don't want to get do any more. And then you end up patients still have metriosis on the rectus muscle, right? So it's important to know that information ahead of time. Just like, you know, you want to know a patient had bowel endometriosis or, or blood endometriosis, you know, depending on. So usually, even in patients, I think that I can just do a discoid resections, okay, without doing the whole segmental resections. They will see my general surgeons regardless ahead of time. Yeah, I, I do the same. And that's, you know, I think those of us that are out there doing this without senior partners like you, I think as we've you know, develop these practice plans. It's it's always so reassuring to me. I think I was watching a video of one of our other colleagues when I was first out and we're operating on a, a bladder nodule and I thought, man, I'm just so far from being, you know, in that level. And then I hear the person say, oh, and now as my urology colleague is going to take over. And it's like, okay, good. There's, you know, I'm not, I'm not the only person who's, yeah. you know, using other people in the OR to help these yeah. patients get what they need. And I think especially in academic centers when you've got a colorectal surgeon next door and a urology on the other side. If you're doing that stuff as a gynecologist, you have to be pretty, you have to be pretty careful about whether you're going to be doing those surgeries with, you know, when you've got the experts next door. But yeah, I've got a colorectal surger, surgeon 
who I work very closely with and, you know, on our advanced endo cases, if I suspect bowel endometriosis for the reasons you're talking about, I always have them go see them first. They oftentimes get a colonoscopy if there's concern about transmural disease and and that way they're able to be counseled about what bowel surgery is going to look like. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's nice to hear that you also are referring to general surgery colleagues as well, just so I think it helps when they know the surgeons who are going to be involved on their team right. at the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I do my discord resection myself and that's because I, you know, I work very well with my general surgeons. So typically if, you know, patient's uh, disease is amenable to discord resection, I do it myself. And then if the nodules is very large or it's multifocal, then they will come in to do the mental resection. So, so fortunately for me, I have, you know, I operate, uh, I operate three days a week. Mondays I operate with one general surgeon and Thursday I operate with different general surgeons. Okay. So they all have cases going on at the same time. Okay. And so they don't come in to do the surgery unless I told them that you need to come into the segmental resection. The discord resection, I just take care of myself. And yeah. and so that's what I do. For bladder endometriosis, I do it myself. And then for your endometriosis, you know, I usually do it myself you know, with them watching me doing it for the most part. For what was the last part for the, uh, urethral implantations, urethral, yeah. you know, sur uh, reconstructive surgery. Now, one of the most recent cases. Cause you're doing it all straight stick. A lot of urologists are, uh, yeah, are yeah. robot only. I'm, I'm, I'm there to binge basically, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, that it's, uh, I was, I was closing a cuff one time cause we yeah. had the urologist came in to look at something. Yeah. I was like, oh, let me just close it real quick so they can get it and do, and, and do their part. Yeah. And I hear the urology attending turn to this fellow and go. He's making it look really easy. Yeah. Very easy. Because I don't, yeah, they just, they're not doing a, a ton yeah. of straight yeah. stuff in urology. Yeah. But yeah, and again, I think it's not necessarily should or shouldn't you be doing things yourself. And I, and I also, if there's a bladder issue, I, you know, I'll have the urologist come in, but I'll close it myself. But I think the key is understanding what your comfort level is, getting to a point that you got that to where you are now, I'm guessing, took working with these other surgeons for years and years to get to where they know that you can handle these things on your own. You're not doing right. this fresh out. No, I mean, I think it's, it's, and I just feel very fortunate that, that I have all these people to rely on, you know, when things gets beyond, you know, what I can offer them. Right. And then, and also too, is, is my, my, my general surgeons really trusts me. So, you know, so, you know, if they are stuck in their own case and want me to get started with their dissection for their segmental resections. I do all the dissections for them. I, you know, lift the rectum, open the retrorectal space, tunnel between the eye and the ureter, get out all that space, you know, dissect out for them. So when they come in, they can just do a segmental resection with the staplers. How important it is for your patients and for, for those of us that do this to develop those relationships. And that's something that I don't know that I thought about ahead of time, but, you know, over the years, I've got colleagues that I consider friends who I've operated with countless times and who, like you said, there's kind of times when they pop in, they go, sounds like you got, looks like you got it. And we, and we do those parts or whatever, but yeah, I mean, over time, we're, it, it's, it's a, it, surgery is a team sport. And as, as we get further and further along, there's more and more people that are responsible for my, my training and my growth and those things. And so it's a, it's such an important part of this job is to have, have good colleagues. But, you know, on the, Flip side of the coin, you know, the, the gynecologist should, for endometriosis surgery, the gynecologist should be the captain in terms sure. of, in terms of what needs to be removed. Okay. Because the general surgeon doesn't know what needs to be removed, you know, so, 
you know, so it's important. It's a great point. Right. So it's important for you to be able to, you know, for example, if you just have the general surgeon coming in to do the bowel and the mitosis, and you leave all the mitosis on the rectal vaginal septum, rectal cervical region, which is in the other, you know, in the same patient with bowel mitosis, they have a lot of mitosis, you know, behind the cervix, causing the uterus to wrap onto itself, right? The 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 uterus can wrap onto a ball and then stuck to the cervix. And when you unravel that between the uterus and the cervix, is all this disease that needs to be removed. The general surgeons are not going to do that. You are the right. one who is going to recognize that and take care of the, those endometriosis. You are responsible for separating the bowel from the posterior vagina and then and just say, okay, here is a huge nodule, or this is a multifocal nodule, or this is a patient with a stricture. You need to come in and do the segmental resections. You're the one you know, who should decide this should be a segmental or discoid. And that's kind of like the kind of my take on that. And we'll have to have you back on the show to talk through the surgical side of things too, because yeah. it's so tempting for me to just keep going with this well, thread. But I want to make sure, yeah. for the purposes of this show, that we that we make sure we we you know we we touch on all the ambulatory stuff too. But the other thing I was thinking about in ambulatory workup is the non pelvic endometriosis. Like, what are your you know I think we we see occasional videos in our societies about you know diaphragmatic diaphragmatic stripping and those things. What's your threshold for referring to or getting CT surgery involved for these particular cases? Yeah. How often are you finding that? How often are you finding diaphragmatic disease? Yeah. So the the people who I work with, the two general surgeons I work with also are surgical oncologists. Oh. So okay. they're they're comfortable in that space. Yeah. So so both of them are surgical oncologists and the bariatric surgery, you know, they all that dual fellow they do two fellowships, you know, both of them. So they, yeah, so for diaphragmatiosis, I, I work with them and then they'll, you know, they would just, you know, they'll help, you know, help me position the patients and then frequently a lot of diaphragmatiosis, the best position would be left lateral to pick this, to keep it this position because you use gravity to get the retract the liver out of the way and give you a good exposure to the posterior diaphragm. So are you repositioning them intra-op? No, usually I, I, I don't like to do them in the same settings. It just, you know. Oh, so separate surgery. Yeah, because a lot of times you don't really know like how bad the diaphragmatiosis and the imaging, it's not always that great for diaphragmatiosis. So I tell the patients that usually it's just better to do like a stage procedure if you, if, you know, if you have diaphragmatiosis just to know exactly where the disease is and everything, okay? Because not all diaphragmatiosis is the same. Because if you have diaphragmatiosis near the central tendon, that's very, that's much more dangerous. Because that's where all <laughs> it, it, all, it all sounds dangerous to me. <laughs> no, it's because in the near the central tendon, that's where all the, you know, the vena cava, the aorta, the portal vein, mm. you know, all the phrenic nerve is that in the central portion of the diaphragm. You know, and what, what's the, what's the what's the clinics? clinical findings where you're suspecting that? I mean, what, what, what gets you to the point in the clinic in the office to where you suspect endometriosis in those spaces? Well, there, is patient, it just, is it, is yeah, it, there's cyclic, cyclic, you know, chest pain or shoulder pain. They will tell you that. And there's not many things that can cause that. So yeah. the thing is, the problem is uh, that when I tell a patient, I'll put additional pore under the, uh, under the rib for me to reach that area, do a bit of visual. I put my scope, my camera, Underneath the rib to look around the liver. If you if you keep your keep your uh, umbilical trocar as your primary visual port for diaphragmatiosis, you'll miss a lot. 
And so you'll see it, you'll diagnose it, and then you'll wake him up and talk to him about it and then come back another day yeah. to manage if you do find it. Exactly. Yeah. And actually a lot of patients gotcha. don't have it. Right. But you got you won't know if you don't look. Exactly. Yeah. So so yeah, so if you just say, Okay, I look at it from my um umbilical port, you you may miss it. You you if you really want to know, you have to put a like a subcostal port there. I do I do a lot of Palmer's point entry as well. So Yeah. So like on the right side, if you do that on the right side and look around the and use the angle scope to look around the liver. Yeah. Then you'll find it. Excellent. Most well, of the, most of posterior diaphragmatomatriosis, you're not gonna find it with umbilical port. Right. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. It's helpful. Yeah. yeah. So in in the clinic setting, anything else you I mean, we're we're getting close to time here. I know you're a busy guy. Yeah. Um any other imaging studies, lab tests, anything else you're you're getting in these folks? Because I think that's and that that's sort of what I think of as as in terms of my workup. But anything else we're missing that our listeners should think about when when evaluating patients for endometriosis? Yeah, I think I think a lot of your listeners are you know OBGYN, general OBGYN in the community. One of the worst things you could do is order C125 and then is elevated and refer to oncologists. You're guaranteed. It's always going to be mildly elevated with with endo, and it's just well, going it to be also pretty out. high too. So what's going to happen is the oncologist is going to remove that patient's ovary, and that's what's going to happen. You are basically interesting asking the oncologist to remove the ovary when you do that. So yeah, so in young patients, I, I don't typically order any tests. Obviously, it can be elevated in in, in the in the patient with severe endometriosis, but there are a lot of the newer tests that's coming in the horizon. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the future of diagnosis of endometriosis. So it's actually, there's a, a study in the lay press about a, a Japanese study, which I, I'm sure you heard about with the you know, fusobacterium, I think was found more commonly in the uterine microbiome in patients that had endometriosis compared to those that don't. Again, very, very early. It's one, I think one study, not a huge number of patients. But um, what do you think the future of endometriosis diagnosis looks like? Well, it's, I think it's already here. I don't know if you have heard about it, but there is a company from France using the same technology that they use that was used to, you know, discover the COVID vaccinations, the micro RNA. They were able to find like a little bit over a hundred signature micro RNAs for endometriosis and are able to hmm. achieve like close to like ninety seven percent sensitivity and close to hundred percent specificity. Basically this like is, perfect this is just test. A blood test. No, it's saliva. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah, yeah. Is this to market in Europe or this is like early? I think they are pretty far. I mean, I first heard about this when I went attended the ESG in Lisbon last October. Oh, so a while back, like eight months ago? I mean, not a while, yeah. not years, yeah. but like yeah. within the last 12 months. Yeah. I mean, you can Google and you'll find this, those studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing. And so the problem with that, I actually was playing around with ChatGPT the other day. And I asked what would be like the pitfall of extremely sensitive and accurate diagnostic tests for endometriosis. And ChatGPT gave me uh, incredible answers. <laughs> Better than any student, resident, fellow, or faculty member, probably. Yeah. yeah what, what, so I, what, what, what did ChatGPT have to say? ChatGPT says that you're going to have a lot of patients who are overdiagnosed and overtreated. Okay. Because you're going to have asymptomatic patients that are going to have it, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, like, thing. for example, you know, we all know we have patients who have, like, kind of incidental endometriosis, very small superficial endometriosis. You're not even sure if that's the reason for their pain. 
but, but you excise it and you diagnose it. You know, sometimes the mitosis can be incidental, have nothing to do with the patient's pain, right? But it's very hard to persuade a patient that the mitosis may not be the reason for their pain because they have a diagnosis and nobody give any reason for their pain for the past 10 years. And now they say, well, I have biopsy proven endometriosis, even though with just a little bit. Or or MRNA diagnosed endometriosis, not even biopsy proven. Yeah, Exactly. Because it's so so accurate, right? So now you're going to have this easy test of saliva and then you have all the patients diagnosed with endometriosis and they all think that the reason for their pain is, you know, endometriosis. So there's going to be, you know, what you do with the information is going to be like the challenge, right? And ChatGPT predicted that, by the way. I, I asked them That's the amazing. questions. Okay. Access. ChatGPT talking about access too, because the, but test, the test may be very expensive. So if you don't have money, you don't have the right insurance, you may not be diagnosed. So there could be some inequities. Unnecessary surgeries. Unnecessary surgeries. Over surgery, over treatment, right? Or, or over yeah. medications, right? Over medicate. That's right. Right. So, yeah. So it's not, you know, even though you have like the most perfect test, it doesn't, it, it, it create new problems. Be careful what you look for. So we, yeah, yeah, it's what you our, be, our, be our careful what you wish for. Right, exactly. Be careful what you look for because you just might find it. And then yeah. now, what do we do? What do we do with that information? Like, it, okay, we have this thing. Right. We don't know what it means. We can you can worry about it forever, or we right. can expose you to a new risk from a, from a different intervention. So, yeah, well, it's exciting. I mean, I think I think there is more interest in endometriosis than there's been in our lifetime. A lot of that has to do with you, both in your work um, as president of AGL and your video work and your work with, we didn't even talk about your work with the health economic stuff with the ICD-9 codes and all those things. I mean, your your contribution to medicine, to women's health, to endometriosis is 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 massive, Ted. And it's- Oh, thank uh, you. It's, it, you you make a lot of us feel, <laughs> you make a lot of us feel like, uh, you know, we're not uh, doing anything compared to how much you've contributed, but it is, it is great to to call you a, a colleague and a friend and a mentor, someone who I I look I look up to very much, and I uh, I definitely uh, and and all your fellows you've trained. I mean, you put out unbelievably well trained fellows, and and you've really done an amazing job in your career. Not that you're done, but just to see what you've done so far is incredible. So it means a great deal that you've taken the time to join us on uh, on Back Table, and we'll def- definitely have to have you back on at some point to really get down to the nitty-gritty uh, in the operating room and the, the surgical side of all this stuff. Well, great uh, talking with you. It has been a pleasure and honor to, to, to be part of the podcast. Well, thanks again. All right. Well, good good catching up, and hopefully we'll get to hang out soon. And one of right. these days, I'll have to convince you to take me fly fishing. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovrijinsky. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lilly Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own 
and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.